Welcome. Thank you very much uh, for coming to what is actually the penultimate uh, event in the 2012 series of Weinrieb Life Writing Lectures, so-called because the philanthropist Harry Weinrieb was the founder of the Dorset Foundation, which funds the Oxford Centre for Life Writing at Wolfson College. I'm very glad to see you all here, especially some of the students uh, who are studying life writing with me this term. And as on every occasion, uh, our speaker will be happy to uh, answer questions, lots of questions, uh, and sign books. As you know, this series is called Fiction and Auto-Stroke Biography. Uh, I asked four novelists to talk about how their fiction connects to or develops from or has to do with autobiography and biography. And we've had some very interesting responses to this challenge from our free, three previous speakers, Michelle Roberts, Alan Hollinghurst, and Candia McWilliam. Today promises to be quite as absorbing, but in a very different way. When I was chairing the Man Booker Prize in 2006, I and my entire panel of judges were electrified by the arrival of a writer none of us had heard of before. This was Hisham Matar, citizen of the world, born in New York, brought up in Tripoli and Cairo, living in London, sometimes known as an Anglo-Arab or British Libyan writer or just as the Libyan novelist. And the book that thrilled us was his first novel, In the Country of Men, a truly remarkable work which, shortlisted for that man Booker Prize, went on to win the 2007 Commonwealth Writers' Best First Book Prize, the Royal Society of Literature Ondaatje Prize, and numerous other awards, and to be translated into 22 languages. So if there is a single person in this audience uh, who hasn't yet read it, read it later today. In the Country of Men, set in Libya under Gaddafi in 1979, is told by a nine-year-old Libyan boy who brings us the terrible events in Tripoli as they impinge on his life, whose father is disappeared, and who shows us subtly and truly how a political system of repression can warp an individual's character. Hisham Matar's new novel, Anatomy of a Disappearance, set mainly in Cairo, also treats with tenderness and complexity the theme of the father's loss, of exile and of family estrangement. Hisham Matar is a novelist who has found himself swept up in major political events, and much of his life involves negotiating the responsibility of the artist to the claims of world history. You'll probably have read his moving, lucid and vividly engaged writings in The Guardian and elsewhere on the Libyan Revolution, which has entered every corner of his life. Yet I think he might describe himself not as a political writer, but as a teller of human stories. His title strikes a warning note. The closest exit may be behind you. Please make him very welcome. Thank you. Um, Thank you for the wonderful introduction and for the invitation, uh, Hermione. I, um, I first met Hermione Lee in the um, very um, uh, pompous and artificial um, uh, ceremony for the, for the Booker Prize, <laughs> um, which is very, it was very, it was of course a wonderful experience, but also you never really know how to play it as an author because you're re you really want to win. Um, <laughs> But you don't want to seem like you really want to win. You want to be gracious and generous, and you want to seem like you don't really care. But you, and I found it very difficult um, to, to, to strike the right note. Um, and after the disappointing announcement was made, um, I went to the Penguin uh, party because uh, the winner was not only a, a good friend of mine, but also somebody who uh, was published by the same publisher. And I found Hermione there talking to my publisher. And by this stage, I was sort of refreshed and relaxed. And, um, and I put my arm around Hermione, who had never met me before. Um, and uh, very imposingly, I said, so why the fuck didn't I win? <laughs> um, and she laughed. So I was um, immediately you know, endeared to her. And... Um, like you know, anybody that gets my humor wins my heart. So, um, so what I'm going to um, this invitation sort of provoked um, um, things that I've been thinking about 
um, pretty much for the last year. Um, and so I wanted to use it to, to, to uh, think more uh, sharply about uh, issues of my place as a, as a fiction writer uh, during very compelling times um, that touch my, my life closely and try to, to think out loud about the subject and um, hopefully um, invite you also to think about it with me. No novel, poem, or painting can awaken something in us that isn't already there. By the same logic, everything one writes is a reflection, no matter how distant, of a hidden and pre-existing value or concern, emotion, or thought. This seems to be a simple truth, but often either overlooked or oversimplified. Just because everything a writer writes comes from her or him does not mean it has happened to her or him. The workings of the imagination are far more complex and interesting than this presumption assumes. So one of the things I mean by the nearest exit may be behind you is a reference to the practical nature of writing as I see it, one in which inspiration, or a more accurate word would be the beginning, is initiated by a familiar gesture or remark, or more times than not for me, a feeling. That's what I mean by the beginning, not the first line. It's determined it, it determines everything that must follow, the point of entry, the pace, the rhythm, where the attention is focused and from where it is taken, what is included and excluded, and the inevitable ordering of information as the work progresses. All of these decisions that a writer must make during the writing of a novel are mostly made silently, often without his or her consent or, or knowledge even because they are, if true and therefore worth the trouble, determined by the work. And the author is also, and again, if he's true and worth the trouble. In the time a novel takes to be written, the mechanics of the work and the life of the writer are all subject to the work. They belong to it and are forged by it. This has been my experience. I would say that what I write, writes me. It is a way out of myself, a way into the world, into nature. The novel I am writing determines where and how I live. What is required then is stillness. But stillness is a deeply radical state. To sit every day in front of a blank piece of paper and surrender to emptiness to try to make something of it, to improvise, feel the line hardening, lose the ease with which it had first come, spend the rest of the day trying to regain it, to return to that original enchantment. In the mornings, in a room upstairs in George Sand's house, Frédéric Chopin would sit at the piano and improvise. He would then spend the rest of the day trying to recapture the fluidity, the effortlessness of a phrase, to make it lift, to remember it, to remind it of its freer self, to note it down. Several times he would be heard screaming to himself. It is natural that readers, society, the state, should all find the nature of this activity problematic. 
How do you measure it? How do you legislate for it? Which is why the nearest exit for the reader oftentimes becomes the author's autobiography. The more convincing or comprehensive or moving a work is, the stronger the temptation to delve into the life of the author. Mainly to ask, and this is what I feel all questions to do with autobiography are really asking, did this really happen? But also, besides asking this, the desire to delve into the details of the author's life whilst, making in, whilst masking in the noble wish to learn more about the work is a subconscious attempt to destroy the work and therefore leave it behind, to survive it. Sometimes, against his own wishes, the author implicates him or herself in the process. No one can question the state of stillness necessary to create more than the practitioner. No one is more doubtful, and no one is more scornful, perhaps even more than academics, of the necessary enchantment that a literary work needs. No one is more selfish, but also no one is more persistent and guilty about his selfishness. And the nearest exit from this guilt for several writers has been the urgent and compelling need to become involved in the current human battles. For this, I would like to look at two writers who in different ways have been desperately tested by the political upheavals of their times. Over the past year, they have both been on my mind, perhaps because I have never before been so strongly appealed to or required to enter public life. In 1945, shortly after liberation, a charismatic French general manages to convince the award-winning French author André Malraux to be his Minister of Information. Approximately 45 years later, the internationally acclaimed Peruvian novelist Mario Vargas Llosa puts his pen down to run for office. Apart from both being authors who entered public life, their story shares a detail that is both telling and curious in its mirror likeness. General Charles de Gaulle had been trying for some time to convince the reluctant André Malraux, a man 11 years his junior, to take on the job of minister. He used the guilt argument. Your country needs you. He used flattery. You are the best man for the job. And... I'm sure de Gaulle also used the mildly threatening argument of so much would be lost if you turned this down. Every tactic failed. It wasn't until all three were employed with equal skill and fine balance that the general succeeded. That night, victorious, de Gaulle tiptoed into his marital bedroom and woke up Yvonne de Gaulle. Yvonne turned on the lamp beside her bed and squinted at the figure of her husband unbuttoning his military jacket. I imagine the large brass buttons eased out of the slits with more willingness than usual. He apologized for waking her up. Where have you been? she asked. Tonight, he said. Then perhaps here he paused, or perhaps he went straight on speaking the words quickly. Tonight I assassinated André Malraux. By this time, Malraux had published La Condition Humaine, published in English under the title Man, of Man's Fate, a novel about the existential plight of a diverse group of people after a failed revolution. He had also written L'Espoir, published in English under the title Man's Hope, about the Spanish Civil War, another historical drama in which the fated Malraux had played an important role, fighting on the side of the Republican forces and indeed setting up the legendary Esquadron España, which had inflicted serious losses onto Franco's nationalist army. André Malraux ended up serving de Gaulle until the end of the general's presidency in 1969, first as Minister of Information, then as Minister of State, and finally as the, minister, as the first Minister of Cultural Affairs. Away from Europe, in South America, and about 20 years after Malraux retired from public office, 
the 54-year-old Peruvian novelist Mario Vargas Llosa, already noted for novels such as The Time of the Hero, Conversations in the Cathedral, and The War of the End of the World, was running for the presidency of Peru. Late one night, he too walks into his marital bedroom and silhouetted by the light, begins to unbutton his dinner jacket, waking his wife, Beatricia Yosa. Like Yvonne, Beatricia too turned on the lamp beside her bed and squinted towards her husband. But she did not ask, where have you been? She knew he was in a political rally. His combed hair and his shoulders were sprinkled with confetti. All she said was, once, and perhaps here too, I imagine, she paused. Once, I was married to a novelist. Many writers and readers distrusted Yosa after his running for office, not only because of the neoliberal platform in which he ran, which many Latin American, Asian, African, and Arab intellectuals saw as betraying the struggle for self-determination and social justice. It wasn't that, I would argue, that turned their hearts. They distrusted him because they doubted his commitment to literature. They doubted his faith. And although André Malraux's political career is seen under a more favorable light, it too caused some readers to shy away from his work for a time. The pressures on both men to give up a career in letters were logical and practical as well as compelling. Very few disagree that Malraux was an excellent public servant or that de Gaulle was right in his selection. French culture benefited greatly by his appointment. And regardless of what one might think of Vargas Llosa's political ideas, it is deeply unlikely that his presidency, had his candidacy been successful, would have overseen the high, level, high levels of corruption, authoritarianism, and hum, human rights abuses that the ten and a half year long reign of President Alberto Fujimori had administered. No one can doubt the good intentions of Malraux and Vargas Llosa, nor their willingness to sacrifice their work and privacy for public service. But one can also not help but read in their lives and work at fateful trajectory, small acts of implication, and equally, one cannot help but read these as subconscious attempts to escape literature. A romantic would say literature is more important than public service. But I'm not a romantic, at least not in this sense. I am, though, a romantic with a capital R, in that I have never, no matter how hard I have tried, been able to completely discard the conviction that society and history are determined to destroy the artist and that that determination is covert, or perhaps more accurately, systematic. And so my place of resistance to being anything but an artist is not professional, but existential. I feel my entire being depends on it. I surrender every morning around 10 a.m. my goods and ambition and motives and causes and hang-ups at the door. I let literature set the agenda and the challenges. I serve her. Should a novelist be foolish enough to demand that literature serves him, then he risks the integrity of his work. Such a novelist is like a man who embraces his beloved whilst imagining another woman. Every novelist makes these decisions privately and sometimes without his complete knowledge. Yet everything depends on this question of fidelity. So, why did I throw myself into the Libyan uprising so completely? As I became a sort of journalist and commentator during the early hot days of the revolution, I constantly harbored a complicated feeling of disapproval towards my own actions. The artist was upset at the citizen, and in turn the citizen was impatient towards the artist. In light of the extraordinary events taking place, this private struggle might seem inconsequential to the world, maybe. But to me, it was fundamental. It heralded a renewal of my vows.
Thank you. Hisham, could I ask you first a little bit more about your own, uh, your own novels, um, which you have modestly not talked about yet uh, tonight. You said earlier on that uh, what I write writes me. Hmm. Um, both your novels um, have in them uh, a young a, a boy uh, who is in, in the middle of fantastically conflicted and difficult and emotional feelings about his family, uh, about his father particularly. Uh, and both of them are also very strongly about um, the question of which place you belong to um, and you know, where, where your life is situated and what, whether, you are, whether you think of yourself as an exile or belonging to a country. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit um, in addition to what you've said um, about the about the way in which your fiction takes you over and how those things keep coming back to you as subjects. Mm. Well, they both in, in, both novels started with very little, um, and whenever I have a new idea that is that is um, comprehensive that I can see quite a lot of it. Um, I'm suspicious, and I, I lose interest. So, so for me, w what's, uh, what's, what's worked uh, is having what I, what I described as a feeling. Um, and the feeling is not about a particular um, circumstance, perhaps, or a particular set of, of, of events but about a moment, or maybe even a gesture or a, a character. And, um, and I have to feel that that thread is incredibly weak, that at any moment is going to snap. Um, and then, therefore, the desire to, to work on it is to, to be uh, very, very careful. Um, um, another very important thing in the very beginning uh, for me, is the opposite to what um, I used to think, which is if I could only get the sound of the character, I would have something substantial. For me, it's actually the opposite. It's if I can only get the silence of the character, if I only can know what it would be like to be silent next to them, or, or even maybe not silent next to them, but the silence that we leave in a room. You know, when you walk into somebody's room and there's a different sense of silence than in the other room. And, um, and um, so for me, I start for, at, at these kind of very basic sort of almost tonal um, um, uh, challenges and, and questions. Um, but then as the work starts to grow, I can, uh, and, and years after I finish something, I can see what it was that, that preoccupied me. And... Um, I can see in both novels that um, there is this interest in what it means to be um, an individual, to be independent. What it means, um, you know, what is a, what is what is the, what is our relationship to to the people around us, but also to place and to memory, more importantly, um, uh, and and how in fiction, when you put these layers of memory and the present and the and, and, and history, um, that, um, that something very exciting starts to happen um, that articulates, I think, um, something interesting and, and hopefully true and profound about what it means to be a human being in these times. So, um, so that's, how they, that's, how, that's how they start. Yeah. And in, uh, in, uh, in The Country of Men, mm. uh, there's quite a lot in that novel about the ancient 
prehistory yeah. of Libya. Yeah. Um, the Ro Roman um, Leptis Magna, mm. the, the, uh, the Roman site. And there's, there's a strong sense of a country that has perhaps fallen away from its historical past mm. or is trying mm. to find an equivalent dignity and, mm. and heroism back mm. from uh, mm. present conditions. Mm. Obviously, that, that takes me on to asking you about your sense of Libya now um, and what you think is happening now. And I wondered whether you could talk a bit more about, put in more detail perhaps if you were willing to, about how you have become taken up in the year of the... Of, mm. of the revolution, and what is your own feeling about what is happening to, to Libya now? Mm. I think part of what was going on um, and what was always um, very, it's very difficult to, to uh, attend to um, when events are so immense and immediate, uh, is that Libya is going through and has been going through for many years a process of uh, defining what it is, um, that it is extraordinarily young, the country. And so uh, the question of what it means to be Libyan is, um, has an urgency and, and, and a crisis you know, a attached to it. Um, uh, and so I think part of what's going on, part of, you know, of course we can talk about you know, the details of the, of the events and the revolution and all, but existentially, I think that's what's actually happening. Uh, Libya is asking itself what it means to be Libyan, and several people have very clear answers, and many don't. Um, for me, when when the uh, when the revolution started, I remember uh, when the Tunisian revolution happened. I wrote a piece for the Guardian, saying, uh, arguing why this is unlikely to happen in Libya, um, and. Um, and a few weeks later, it happened in Libya. And my first reaction was, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to write anything. I'm not going to do anything. And two hours later, I was, I was writing an article uh, about it. Uh, in the sense that I felt, I, I could feel a tug of, uh, of what was going on, on on my personal life. And... Um, and I wasn't really sure how to how to exist. You know, do I do I go and fight? Do I do I sit and write? Do I do nothing? It's, it seemed like a very unclear territory uh, to me. I felt I had huge passion for the events that were deeply moving, and I was very involved in them. And I knew a lot of people who were involved in them. Um, and I wasn't really sure what I am supposed to do, really. Um, and so they, they tested this private space that I have carved for myself uh, to write fiction. What, how can I describe this private space? It's, it's protecting me from several... It's a very complicated space, actually, because it's a space in the literal sense, a quiet space, you know, that, that, that I can sit and, and work. And all of the uh, logistical problems of, you know, having time and, um, and having room to work, all of these practical problems that all writers face, but on top of them I had other problems to do with you know, an incredibly violent intrusive dictatorship that was very upset at what, what I was doing and, um, and, I f you know, and, and keeping an eye on me and the anxieties that came with that, but also the desire to remain independent to not, to not uh, write uh, I mean, I remember in the country of men when I was writing in the country of men, I felt I was on a razor's edge that um, there was this voice that was saying, document everything, make this book about you know their crimes, which is basically ruining the book. Um, um, and the other voice saying, don't say anything. Don't even admit, set it in some hypothetical country. Detach yourself. Become your own censor. You know, become your own oppressor because there are incredible risks attached to doing stuff like that. And being on the razor's edge, saying, no, I'm, my loyalty is only to literature, I'm just going to do this, and I'm not going to let it serve anything uh, except itself, was an incredibly difficult, um, I found it a very difficult uh, exercise. Um, and so that space was hard won for me. 
And then suddenly this event happened and it seemed to, uh, it seemed to demand a different kind of articulation of the same vow I had made before uh, of independence and of, of loyalty uh, to the work uh, because it was coming from a direction I never imagined it would come from. I understood the dictatorship. I understood what it wanted from me. Uh, but this was something tremendous and wonderful and, and incredibly um, devastating all at the same time. Um, and, um, and so I, I felt uh, that the citizen in me was compelled to, uh, to, to, to document, to articulate, um, uh, to, to, to say what I, what, how I see things and, and what I know about them. Um, and uh, my that literal space, that literal quiet space of uh, contemplation and of writing, and um, ended up being a busy, literally, you know, literally a busy news desk. Um, uh, lots of people running were making endless calls to Libya because in the early days the, the journalists weren't allowed to go in and. And uh, journalists in Libya were all imprisoned two weeks before the uprising in preparation. Um, and so uh, we were um, just sitting down, documenting, writing down what people were saying and trying to cross-check stories and making between 50 to 100 phone calls a day to, to Libya. Um, and something bizarre starts to happen to, uh, to you when you do that. When you, when you are speaking to people who are incredibly anxious. Um, um, I remember, for example, at one point speaking to this woman who had uh, 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 soldiers just beat down the door and come in and search for her husband and walk out again. Uh, and all I cared about was, you know, what did they exactly tell you? <laughs> when did they come in? You know, all these kind of incredibly practical questions. Um, absolutely no room to engage with the emotion uh, of it. Um, it was very bizarre. And eventually I started to feel, uh, it kind of pushed the all, most of the calls to my friends and, and colleagues, uh, except the ones that I would jump on and, and do myself would be to nurses or doctors, because they were incredibly precise and they had a certain kind of detachment that I felt I could handle. So that whole time was, um, was intense and... Um, and, uh, and challenging. And I do feel on some level it's sort of petty and ridiculous that I should even complain about this. But to me, uh, I'm not complaining about personal inconvenience, but uh, I, I am trying to uh, articulate or trying to, to, to highlight the problem that it represented to my own work as a, as a novelist and to my own you know, the mental and emotional uh, space that I had uh, for, for my own work. Um, and, and as that sort of lost, uh, as that sort of became less and less intense, now I find myself out into this new space where the geography has changed, where um, my whole identity is sort of in crisis in a bit, or not in crisis, but um, uh, demanding redefinition. Um, uh, because I suppose on some level I uh, took for granted the very simple fact that dispossession is, is possession that when you're learning how to live without your country is a kind of something you own. <laughs> you get better at it. Um, and then suddenly the country is back and uh, you have to learn how to live with it and, and um, learn how to be a citizen uh, in a different way again. Um, but also um, that uh, uh, redefinition of my identity is not only um, coming from my own thoughts and emotions, but it's also being in... Uh, inflicted upon me. Um, uh, just like Hermione said, you know, that the, in the, before the uh, so-called Arab Spring, I was always introduced as the British writer of Libyan origin, or, um, which is true. Uh, um, uh, and then after the Arab Spring, I am Libyan writer living in London, which is also true. It's, uh, it's, uh, um, so, <clears throat> so the... Oh, uh, so I suppose what I was, um, the reason I was focusing on Marlow and Vargas Llosa is I was almost holding them as, as examples of perhaps what not to do, notwithstanding all my admiration for them, you know. Um, 
because I did have very direct propositions for me to become more involved in this way or that. And I was very surprised at my response. I was very surprised when somebody said, you know, why don't you, you know, maybe become an active member of the government or something. And my no was immediate. It wasn't give me a couple of days to think about it. It was immediate and it was, there was something under it that was angry, and protective, like a, like a mother around her, 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 her young children. So I was, um, so I was, um, so I was curious about this and, and uh, wanted to think more about it and to return to, to, to my place, which now I can see actually is a place outside of these definitions anyway, that there is an existential exile embedded in the, in the, in the life of, of, of writing, that ultimately, um, uh, and, and this is not said as a sentimentalist, but as an anarchist maybe, you know, ultimately the desk is my country and my tribe is, the, is, uh, uh, is, is writers, um, the people that I feel very close to. So... Um, so th that's um, a very confused, long-winded way of trying to, to articulate how, uh, how things have been. Yeah. But, as, but as, a political, as a political citizen mm -hmm. of, uh, of your country, um, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think now about it? I mean, what do, you, what do you see as happening now? What do you think is going to happen? What is going to happen to the, the ordinary citizens of Libya who are not writers or are not What's happening now is easier to speak about than what might happen. I don't know what might happen, but um, what's happening now is that there seems to be a problem in um, looking after the daily runnings of the country. Um, so you have various different uh, organizations, part of them, part of part of which is the government and the NTC, who seem to be, um, to have amongst them some very, you know, good and capable people. But uh, they're deeply ineffective. They, they don't seem to know even what's happening 200 meters away from their, the building that they're in, you know? So their power is very much restricted to, to the buildings that they're in, uh, which is a big problem. Um, and then you have... Um, uh, fighting groups that are running, doing public service, you know, running the traffic, looking after the 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 the, um, the um, national assets. You have in Tripoli Airport the people checking your bags are one brigade that <laughs> that now is uh, is managing that side of things. So they're filling um, <laughs> gaps, but also using this situation to retain power. And to, and to retain influence uh, through that because they feel that the environment is not um, fair enough that they could trust, a, you know, an open process. So, uh, and that's been allowed to go on for a little bit too long now. So it's created, uh, it's created uh, some, some really worrying possibilities. And then uh, behind them or in the middle of them or below them maybe, is a, an incredibly active uh, cultural life um, that um, that uh, civic life has been rejuvenated in a way that uh, I don't think has ever been the case in the history of the country. So you have festivals and you have, you know, literally hundreds of publications. You know, about 180 to 200 um, new newspapers and magazines. Um, um, and a lot of them aren't very good, but some of them are, are, are good. Um, uh, there is, for example, one called El Mayadeen, which was uh, started almost immediately uh, at the point of the uprising uh, by a man called Ahmed al-Fituri. And Ahmed al-Fituri was one of the generation of writers that were imprisoned in the 70s, in the late 70s. There was a whole group of writers that were put in prison for a decade. And he came out in the 80s, in the late 80s, and set up a magazine called La, which means no, and uh, was the, the first to break the story about the AIDS uh, nurses. And, um, um, and then was, you know, the magazine was shot because of that, and he couldn't do it. So, so, so uh, you know, he's, he's one of the people that are very active. And then a much younger generation that is uh, doing a lot of um, 
um, a lot of very interesting work. Um, yeah. Sorry, um, the mic now is working. Thank you so much for that extraordinary account, a bit uh, condensed. Um, I, I have three observations to make, and I'd be very grateful if you could comment on them. Um, the first one is Vaclav Havel. Um, you didn't mention him. He was a man who was a dissident, exiled within his own country, playwright rather than novelist, I know but who faced that kind of dilemma you described mm -hmm. so movingly. Mm -hmm. And at a recent uh, memorial evening um, in Oxford, the general conclusion of those who both knew him and worked with him and admired him was that the first time to go into office was all right, but power and mm. its persistence corrupted mm. him. Mm. And he was always a self-ironic politician, um, and that was in Czechoslovakia, then the Czech Republic, mm -hmm. after the revolutions of 68 before, mm -hmm. after the upheaval of 39 before, right back to the middle of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So the dilemma for the artist in politics, mm -hmm. even in a country like Czechoslovakia as it was in 89, is, is extraordinarily complex. And, and in that respect, I wonder if you don't think that what we've seen in Libya over the last year is like Act One of perhaps a five-act drama. Um, the dismantling, the energy, the setting the scene, knowing who you are, and that there's a long way to go. I was very re reassured by your later remarks because I thought you were about to leap on a plane to go off and become an Andre Malraux which I'm sure would be very sad. And, and, and the third point, which I'd really be very interested in your observations on, is that those of us in Oxford, Europe, are very, very short on well-translated literature from the Arab world. And the volume of material that is to read, for those of us who have a passionate interest in that world, is tiny. And the chronicling of change is done by a tiny handful of people. And as a cultural person, I would have thought there was a huge role there to, to facilitate, encourage, and please, I know it sounds very old-fashioned, to get translated the material that is coming out of that part of the world so that this doesn't become either a North-South revolution or just an Arab world revolution but there's something that um, those who are interested in politics and literature are able to become involved in. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Wow, they're all very good points. <laughs> um, I don't know if I have anything interesting to say about Havel except that I admire his work and, and, um, and the role he played in his country. I remember once we gave a reading together and I didn't... Um, I didn't actually... I've, I've read his work, uh, but I don't think I've ever seen a photograph of him up, up to that time. So I uh, was sitting next to this uh, man who had two uh, very handsome, well-dressed bodyguards next to him. Um, and I thought, who's this guy? And, uh, and I was sitting next to one of the bodyguards who smelled very sharply. It's, uh, um, and I was uh, nervous uh, because I was about to give a reading, and I'm always nervous before I give a reading. So all I was thinking about is my reading. Then I went to give a reading, and when, when I came down from the stage, the old man sitting between the two uh, handsome, smelly bodyguards um, grabbed me by the wrist. I read the part from In the Country of Men. It was actually two weeks before it was published. I read uh, the part of... Uh, it was a human rights event, so I felt I needed to read something harrowing and, and, and awful because it's a human rights event. So I read a passage of, um, uh, of um, an execution in the, in, in the novel. 
Um, and as I was walking back to my seat, the man sitting between the two bodyguards grabbed me by the wrist quite hard. And he said, well done. I said, okay, thank you. Then, Vaclav Havel, and he stands up and goes up to give the reading. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose on some level, I do think politics sees human life, and, and this may be returning back to my work, why I am uh, trying to, to, to hypothesize about why uh, I am so f uh, particularly interested in the detail and particularly interested in private life and in the private moment, um, not in documenting you know, the political historical trajectory and the mechanics of power in the place. I'm not necessarily interested in that, you know, because that's the invitation if you're, if you're from a young country like, uh, in a dramatic country like Libya. Uh, the invitation is to write a big, you know, epic 600 pages history of Libya over the last 100 years told through 12 different characters. You know, that's sort of the, um, and um, uh, and uh, I am uh, doing almost the opposite. I am interested in uh, not so much that history, but in how, you know, how do, how does a lover touch his beloved's cheek under the situation? How do you cook a meal? How do you listen to a piece of music? What happens to this environment under this uh, under this situation. And so I um, uh, thinking, trying to I, I think more about why I am interested in the, in the private moment is, is because on some level, you know, politics does view human life through an inverted cone. It's not interested in these little moments. It's interested in, in big, um, in big uh, pictures, you know. Um, um, and um, and so, so my fear from it is, 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 is that the language it, 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 um, it uses makes it and makes the people in it. So um, 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 about translation, um, yes, you're right. There isn't enough being translated from the Arabic. Uh, There's not enough of any language, actually, if you choose any language. The English language doesn't translate uh, uh, as much as, as I think we deserve as readers. Um, um, the, but also I think to make it a little bit perhaps to be a bit uh, more exact, um, Arabic literature has is, is been in a hard place for a while. Um, combination of um, you know, a failed education system in almost every Arabic country um, for, for quite some time. Um, a really bad publishing industry that is not um, fair to its writers, uh, that doesn't offer the editorial filter and robustness, you know, robust engagement, uh, editorial robust engagement with the texts, um, has meant that there's been a lot published, and a lot published that isn't very good, and even the really good stuff has been published badly sometimes. Um, so if I'm to be fair, if you are to be, you know, to, to stop and say, okay, let's think of the best hundred books ca came out, you know, in the last ten years, um, it would be, it wouldn't be so obvious, you know, it wouldn't be so, um, so easy. So, um, so I think the problem is twofold: that there is a lot of really good works that aren't translated or haven't been translated well or, or are out of print. There's a lot of those. Um, um, but also that Arabic publishing is, is behind. And, and it's becoming better. There are now about, I can think of three or four, you know, world-class uh, publishers who behave really well and edit and pay royalties and do all the things that publishers should do. In fact, I think uh, this is the first time ever in the history of the uh, international organization, the International Society of Publishers, I think it's called, the sort of the main body. Uh, I forget what it's called, but it's the first time that the the president is a is an Arabic publisher, and it's uh, Brahim Al Muallim, who is a great Egyptian publisher, um, and, a, and, and, and a unique publisher in the world in the sense that he really loves literature. <laughs> Publishers don't. Um, so it's um, so that's uh, that's an issue. But also to 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 say something else about this translation, I feel the burning need is the other way around. Actually, um, 
the burning need is, is really good translations into Arabic. Um, uh, if you are to say, okay, I want to buy, you know, uh, uh, Sentimental Education by Flaubert, or I want to get a really good translation of The Tempest by Shakespeare, you'll struggle. You'll find either the really good ones are out of print or arcane and old, and some of them have just not been translated well at all. Um, so that's a big problem that uh, several people have been trying to correct, and it's been getting a lot of attention. So, so I, f I feel actually the desperate need is in the other direction, but thankfully, oh, hopefully we don't have to choose. We can have it going both ways. So. I started as, I mean, the, in the country of men started as a poem. The, um, the, there's a scene that is 43 pages, I think, into the book about a boy, the main protagonist, um, picking mulberries, tasting mulberries for the first time. And I thought it was a poem about the boy in the garden. Uh, and um, and it, that's what I thought it was and, um, and, and discovered it was something else. But So the book started as a poem, but my reading... Um, has mainly been in verse, not in prose. I, I remember the first novel I ever read outside of school. I was, I think, 18 or 19. Up to then, I read only poetry. To me, reading a novel seemed like, uh, like reading the newspaper, you know, that, you, that, that it was better to, to, to read verse. Yes. Is that working now? It is perhaps working, is it? Um, I'd like to offer a, a, a comment and ask a question. Um, another writer who um, addressed the problem you addressed would be Seamus Heaney, mm. who in the bad years yeah. was in the north of Ireland, mm. and the IRA stepped round saying, come along, you can do a bit yeah. more for the cause. Yeah. Yeah. He immediately gave up his job, yeah. crossed the border, um, and became a freelance writer living in, in, a, in a cottage with a peppercorn rent mm. because he didn't want to speak about the big issues. He yeah. also, like you, wanted to talk about the sunlight on a girl's face or how his children were growing up and so on. So that's first that's my little <laughs> comment about to the, the second question is, what about the translation of your own books? Have they mm. been translated into Arabic? Mm. Do, you, do you translate them yourself into Arabic? Mm. Um, and if so, how are they received by Arab readers no. in Libya? Well, it's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned um, Seamus Heaney because he has been uh, uh, maybe a even a surprise to myself. I've always admired his work, but he has been a guide during this time. He's been incredibly important to me. Um, and... Um, um, I, I went to Dublin to give a reading, and I had one of his books with me on the on the plane. And I I, I, I did a reading with another Irish writer I like very much and I admire is um, Dermot Heaney, who has the misfortune of everybody going up to him and saying Mr. Mr. Shemsi, because <laughs> their names are similar. Um, and after the reading, I found Seamus Heaney standing outside talking to uh, a friend of mine. So I went over, and I was kind of tongue-tied because he's been, not because I, uh, not only because of my admiration for him, but it seemed so uncanny and, 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 and problematic that I should see him at this moment because I just wanted to be with his work, not with him. Who needs the writer if you have the work? But, um, um, and so I, because I was so tongue-tied, I, I said, um, I, I said almost nothing. I just looked at him and went like this. And uh, my friend, uh, who knows him very well, said, uh, yeah, this, this uh, poor fucker here is your biggest fan after the guy who's selling the beer down the road. And that sort of kind of you know, loosened <laughs> atmosphere. But he's, yes, I'm glad you mentioned him because he's, he's uh, instrumental and, um, and, I, and I admire him uh, hugely and I admire how he has guarded this private space but whilst attending to the reality. And that to me is very important. I don't want to be 
um, writing about. Uh, I don't want to be deliberately escaping, but I don't want to. I don't want to um, be um, in service of anything else. Um, so, so he's been he's been a reminder of that. Um, as uh, as to the translations of my own uh, work, it's. Um, deeply problematic, this whole issue, because I've had a very difficult relationship with the Arabic text uh, of my novel, mainly because I had a disastrous publisher the first time around who commissioned a really bad translation. Uh, but now it's a happy time. I have managed to extract myself from this, uh, uh, this relationship, and I... Um, have moved to a wonderful publisher, in fact, the man I mentioned earlier, Ibrahim um, Muallim, and uh, found myself an excellent uh, young translator uh, who's uh, Egyptian, based in Cairo. And you have to be incredibly generous, and you have to, be, to be a good translator, I think you have to be almost kind of, you have to be a mystic. You, know, you have to be so selfless and incredibly... Um, um, agile and, and um, able to take on the sound and the feel for, of another text. What's unusual about this translation, uh, translator, his name is Muhammad Abdel Nabi, is that he's also a very good writer. He's a, a very um, distinct writer. Um, so it's been a joy working with him. Uh, it's been wonderful. So, so he translates and I edit and then we go back and forth, back and forth. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to do it myself, but um, I like this process. And I like it not only because I don't think I would be as good as as, as him at, at doing it, but also I like it because uh, the, 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 theoretically, at least, the, 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 the text can even be better than before because there are two writers at work on it. Um, and so I... Um, I, I uh, the... In, the relationship to my work in, 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 in the Arab world or in Libya in particular, it was banned in Libya for, uh, uh, not only my work was banned in Libya, but my name was banned, you know. If you put Matar Hisham, it's okay, but Hisham Matar, it's, you know, so the name was banned. So, um, in fact, this week is the first time that I'm published in Libya in a, in a journal, uh, a short story that was published in a journal. Um, so, uh, it's um, but but the work was smuggled there, and it, it you know it, so it reached Libyan readers, and uh, um, and and it was wonderful to have a conversation like that. Uh, it was also actually the moment it was smuggled in. I had a crazy friend who who took in a suitcase filled with the books, um, the English language when when it first came out in English in the country of men, and I was worried. I was worried for him, and I said, "Look, this is a really bad idea." He said. You overestimate their intelligence. These are idiots. They don't read. And so he took the. But suddenly, you know, the idea that. And um, uh, I feel slightly um, embarrassed to say it, but the idea that the book was, was. has entered the country without me. You know, the idea that it was in these different places on somebody's uh, sofa, on the floor of some car, thrown on the beach or something, was incredibly, uh, surprisingly moving to me. Um, um, yeah. So I have one last question, which is, is uh, are you writing fiction now? Not exactly as we speak, but at the moment. And is that now more difficult? Um, I am, uh, yes and yes. You know, I am, I am uh, writing in the sense that I have an idea that I'm thinking about and I'm, I'm uh, making notes. I'm not working in the, uh, I'm not being able to work in the way that I'd prefer, because uh, the next couple of months I have other obligations that I have to attend to. Um, uh, but so, in that sense, it's 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 difficult. Um, and also, I have this imminent uh, trip to back to to Libya, um, uh, and uh, it's already. I haven't even gone, and it's already causing upheaval. And um, and I feel I need to attend to that in text. I need to write. Uh, maybe just for myself about it, you know. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, we've been told that, uh, um, that the fiction writer is a selfish, anxious, guilty, lonely, antisocial person. Um, you, ga <laughs> you gave us a talk which was the opposite of that, which showed extraordinary 
lucid confidence and generosity and good humour and human interplay. And all through it, a wonderfully moving um, contrast between silence and voices, uh, stillness and hectic activity, uh, the private and the public. You said, who needs the writer when you have the work? Well, we do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.